0: Women who rock. Women rock. Women who rock. Women rock. Women who rock. Women who rock. Women who rock. Women who rock.
1: This is Women Who Rock, a podcast promoting female musicians and artists. Today, I am joined by Bonnie Kay from Bonnie Kay and the Bonafides. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: My pleasure. It's super stoked to be here.
1: It's good that you're here because I feel as though we have very similar influences. Your band, uh, you kind of love uh, blues and traditional music and I love that as well. I would like to hear about, so I actually don't know a lot about Bonnie Raitt. Okay. Can you please tell me about how Bonnie Raitt has been an influence for you and particularly vocally?
2: So Bonnie Raitt, I think she's she's often she's the only woman who makes it into these like the top 100 blues guitarists or guitarist ever. Mm. She'll be the one one or one of very few women there. Um so that's just amazing with in itself. She plays slide, which I also play, but she plays it amazingly well. Okay. My um my mother went to see her like at a bar up the street and she paid $5. It was just like a pub back in the day, in like 1971 or something like that. But um, I just think her voice, it just has so much feel, it has so much depth, like she's just got these raspy, deep, she's sexy and raspy, and but she can be s- soulful and so sad. She's got a, such a huge range. And I think, uh, yeah, I just think she's got everything.
1: Was she the main influence for you to start playing slide guitar?
2: No. No, I think I just... Actually, that was my guitar teacher who suggested I try a slide. I didn't even think I would be able to do it. But he said, sure you could. Why can't you? You have hands.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I play slide a little bit as well. Aha. I use a kind of thin glass one. What is your weapon of choice? What kind of slide do you prefer?
2: I use a metal one
1: on my pinky. Which finger do you use? I use the one... Is that ring finger? The one next to the pinky Yeah I think that's the ring yeah. finger But you use pinky mm-hmm. Okay when I use pinky I feel as though I have less control
2: Right Was that because it's further away from the main I... palm or
1: <laughs> I feel as though it's more like it's kind of flopping around I don't have as much control about it when i When I put it in my ring finger I kind of I think that I sort of squeeze my pinky up against it to stabilize it Oh yeah that makes sense Are you doing that with your ring finger when it's on your pinky finger?
2: I don't think I am and okay. I think the reason, I think it's better with a pinky because I can just use all my other fingers as well. But I really guess it's still three fingers, regardless okay. of where you put it. <laughs> I have seen a lot of people with them on the ring finger. That's why I said my pinky.
1: The Yeah, it's fascinating. that it's And it's so much about, it's different to playing normal guitar when you're fretting it. It's so much about a touch and a feel that takes so long to develop. Yeah. I think that, the i think one of the i mean the main reason that i started playing slide was because of jack white but the person that i really love is derek trucks oh you listen to a lot gosh, of derek trucks
2: he's amazing i I've, I've i've seen him i can't remember where i think i saw the tedesky truck band when they came here at the emo at the emo yeah i was there as well yeah she's she's something amazing as and well they,
1: and they complement each other so well
2: yeah they yeah yeah, that was a great show. And he, yeah, he's an amazing player. But um, so is Jack White.
1: Mm. Love him. He's my favorite. <laughs> is he? His performance, the so he play, they played a cover, a Sun House cover, Dead, Dead Letter, that was on their oh, second album. But he played that live a lot. And he would play it on his old beat-up K. And there's a video of him playing in 2004. And I think that's my favorite seven minutes and... 40 seconds on YouTube.
2: Oh, I got to check it out. It's
1: just the best.
2: I just been watching. I was just watching him yesterday cuz we're going to do um I'm shaking. Do you know that song? Yeah, he covered that. These?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah.
2: And it's a cover of uh, I can't remember who Oh, uh, I don't know the original artist. Yeah. The no. original the original one is a lot slower and doesn't have, you know, backing vocals, but I think okay. we're going to do like, you know, our version, but it's maybe somewhere in between the two. Okay. But I'm just sitting there trying to play that riff. Ba na ba. And then try and sing over it. But I watched the video and he doesn't play that riff. He just plays the solo. It's and then he stops. So he can sing like in But then there's a little bit where he sings over the top of the riff. It's hard. It's like mathematical to try and get the riff and The phrasing get the phrasing right. But yeah, he's a genius.
1: I'll send you the link. We should all watch Jack White playing slide guitar. I love Jack Jack's the way he plays is very it's rock and roll. It's very kinda guttural. I mentioned Derek Trucks before because he is probably more precise slide player, I think that's fair to say. Yes. And in watching videos with him he talks about the relationship between playing slide, being able to emulate the human voice closer than a fretted instrument, because we have all those microtones Mm. in between the frets. Yeah,
2: my guitar teacher used to say that too.
1: Okay. I was wondering if that was a justification of why you wanted to get into it, because you could sort of emulate the human voice by using a slide.
2: Well, it would have been, it would, it, perhaps it may have been, but this, I don't really play um, that much lead stuff, like single note stuff. Okay. But I will work my way up to there eventually, so that it's yeah, it, it's a. I do love that, uh, the intonation and the the, the way it sounds like a voice that is beautiful.
1: So you you when you're playing it on stage, you're mainly playing chords. Yes. To do that. Yes. Okay.
2: I'd pick a little bit,
1: a little bit of picking, but mostly just chords. What about tunings? Are you using what open tunings are you using? Uh, this you is getting mean? very technical, but I'm super interested in slide because I I really love it. <laughs>
2: Um, G and D. Open o- G and Open D.
1: Okay. I've had all, I think, basically all of my guitars in Open G for the last year.
2: It's funny when somebody gets it, picks it up and tries to play a regular standard song. Yeah. Right? Let me, like, me just <laughs> play an E. Oh, no, I can't <laughs> play an E.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a... I mentioned on the podcast before, I feel like... Because I had a slide for maybe two or three years before I knew that you needed to use open tunings to play it properly, and... When I tune all my guitars, I think I started with open D. Yes. Because you have the the root note in the top open string, it's kind of easier to do that. Um, But it's almost like a different instrument. Yeah. I found you you have this instrument that you have had a relationship with for 10 years. You've been playing it for so much. And you change the tunings. And you're like, ah, what happened? (laughs) Yeah,
2: you have to get to know it again. Yeah. I only do... I mean, I do a few with D and then a few in open G. And then I play... Then I use a capo and play some in A, and we place them very carefully in our set so that I don't have to change guitars too many times.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. You had a very busy 2019. You Did played, I? I think, was it 57 gigs I saw you played?
2: Oh, I don't keep track of that, but that sounds like a number I've heard.
1: So yeah, you played a lot of gigs in yes. 2019. The And you were playing some kind of festivals as well. I saw you were playing, is it Uchuca? Yes. The Blues Festival?
2: Yeah, that was our second time there. That is a great festival. Have you yeah. been? I've never been. Oh, you really should go. It's like the whole town is just full of blues lovers and music aficionados and every venue, every every busker, everyone has an like, appreciative audience. It's amazing.
1: I'm interested to hear about, because you play multiple of those kind of blues centric festivals but then you also play shows like at venues i saw you at the cauliflower hotel um, so just kind of normal venues around sydney can you tell us a bit about the different i guess the vibe that you have going into that knowing that it's a blues specific festival as opposed to playing a normal kind of gig at a bar in sydney do you approach that in in a different way
2: I mean, we're all really, we're always really excited to play at festivals because you know there are going to be a lot of people who actually watch and listen. Mm-hmm. That's what they're there for, and they often, not at a but they often have paid a certain sum of money to see some blues. So when we choose our set list, we we sometimes we want to play some blues classics, you know, to please those people, mm. and maybe don't we don't want to go too far away from the blues and roots genres. Because we do have a lot of influences and we play a lot of different styles, but we tend to n- not go wild with um, <laughs> mm. with the genres at the blues festivals because there are some diehard people who, you know, they stand there with their arms crossed. Like, okay. That's our blues,
1: <laughs> right? Okay. The-
2: and uh, well, actually, at these blues festivals, there often there aren't a lot of women playing as well. So you might have people kind of going, "Well, who's this chick now?" and then. You know, you, you, you don't always, but occasionally you might. So then you want to make sure you're playing some uh, some official blues. Okay.
1: <laughs> Decided by them, I guess. Yeah, well, <laughs> in their it's, own classic, <laughs> it's a classic blues song, yeah. Okay. What about when you play the festival, the mix between, because I know on the CD that you released in 2017, there is four originals and four covers. Yes. Is having that in different environment with a different audience, does it influence the the maybe how many covers you would play in the set?
2: I suppose, yeah, it does affect the, I think we play less originals because my originals are are kind of quirky and they're not, they're definitely not standard blues songs. So yeah, some of them might get the flick at a festival, but um, we we play as many of them as we can, obviously. Although at the festival, sometimes you're only playing one set and at some place like the Cauliflower or these other venues, you're often playing three sets. Mm, mm. So... You just have to play everything you know. Play everything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> let's listen to some of your music. So we mentioned that the CD you released in 2017 is called Fake It Till You Make It, which is one of the the title track is the one of your original compositions. So yes. let's have a listen to that right now. This is Fake It Till You Make It by Bonnie Kay and the Ponyfides.
0: You didn't know If you liked your back And you go all shy Cause you don't know What to do or say But if you knew then What you knew now It wouldn't be the- In the air. End- To interview to further your career and this could be your biggest break yet all you feel is fear if you could just believe in yourself like all your friends do but in time when you don't just put it on it will see you through you just lick your hair in the air let them stare you don't care
1: was Fake It Till You Make It by Bonnie Kay and the Bonafides. We were talking a little bit off mic. and We were talking about you were studying art in Boston and your major was in stained glass. Can we please discuss this? (laughs) How did you get into that, having that as your major?
2: Well, I was, I think everybody here thinks that Americans all go to summer camp like every year of their lives. You don't? <laughs> <laughs> I went to summer camp once, and I remember asking mom, "Can I go?" I expected her to say no, but she let me go. So I went to this place called Maine Teen Camp because it was in Maine, not because it was the Maine camp. All oh, right, it had at The state of Maine, yes. Okay. And they had all this stuff you could do, and one of the things you could do was soccer. So I tried to play soccer, and I, I just the first thing I did was wrong, and the coach like blew the whistle and was like, "Why'd you do that?" and embarrassed me in front of everyone. So I dropped out of soccer. <laughs> okay. And I signed up for stained glass. And I just, I was like, this is just what I'm meant to be doing. I don't, The first time I picked up a glass cutter and cut glass and, I mean, they use a different method than the one that's in churches. It's called copper foil. And uh, I just knew. I knew I wanted to do that, like, for a living. And the teacher, I think she understood because I, I gave her, a, after I did the first, like, initial piece, I gave her another drawing. I said, I want to do this one. And she just looked at me and looked at the thing and looked at me and she said, I would never let anyone else do this, but for some reason, I think I'm gonna give you the green light for this project. So I did it, and I went home, and I was was 13, and I said to my mom, will you lend me $100 so I can buy all the stuff I need to make stained glass, and I'm gonna make it and sell it? And she said yes, and then when I was 14, I sold a window for like 200 bucks. I used that, you know, I, I made a profit as a teenager. And then, and then went to high school, and I only applied to one art school, and it was the one that had stained glass. So I went from Philadelphia to Boston
1: just to do it. That sounds pretty specific.
2: Yeah. Well, actually, there was one other school in uh, San Francisco, but I, I was just holding out for Boston. Um, yeah, and it was a great program. There were lots of other people doing stained glass, and we, as part of our program, we did, we did a stained glass window for a church in New Hampshire, and it was a great studio so then i but then i moved to japan where their houses are built to fall down because of the earthquakes oh. so they don't i mean it wasn't really likely that they were going to pay money to have stained glass windows there and then i got to then i moved to australia and i had a baby and there's a significant amount of lead in the stained glass the it's encased in lead so i didn't really want lead around my kid Right. Okay. So I haven't really done a lot of stained glass since then, but I did do a lot of it when I was younger, in my 20s.
1: You mentioned that it was they use a different procedure in the church. Is that just because it's really old or
2: Uh no, it's just um though like you know the like Tiffany lamps, the stained glass lamps, mm, they're okay. so they're really just small. They they're small and uh like delicate little curves so you use copper foil for those but because the anything that's that's big you want to use lead, something sturdy
1: it's just a, yeah it's it's more the size. And they still use lead now? I think so yeah. Okay. But it's sort of dangerous to be working with that all the time?
2: I think so I, I mean it was common for, I had my lead the lead levels in my blood checked and they were normal but um, that was definitely advised the teachers advised us to check them every so often. Okay. Because you're not only, um, you're so soldering it, so you're getting the, the fumes from that, but also just you're touching it and it does go
1: through your pores. When you were studying, do you have a, was it like a major work as part of that where you have to produce one major stained glass window or something?
2: I did do a few pieces. The school I went to was, you you work for a year and then you you go in front of a panel of three teachers and a couple of students, and you have all of the art you made that year, and you talk about it for however many hours, and they decide whether you get your credit or not. And oh, okay. Yeah, it was <laughs> a little bit, a bit scary. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I had mostly I had mostly big pieces, and I had uh, some stained glass windows that I had s- I had s- set them into some kind of resin, and I also was doing ceramics, so I had ceramic figures in them too, like a relief figures
1: when you're in that process where you're lost in the process of doing the stained glass you it's another kind of creativity compared to music how does that I guess the headspace that you're in when you're making an artwork a physical artwork like that compared to when you're in the band room and you're writing a new song with the band
2: that is a really great question I think I think it's like a flow state for both of them. But, I mean, obviously the fact that other people are involved will change the dynamic of, of how you feel. It's a – I mean, the collaboration by nature would – it changes it. But at its root, yeah, so I think it's the same. Same feeling. Mm. Same – comes from the same place.
1: The same flow state. Yeah. Right. Okay. So do you miss not having that outlet? Something that is making you really – getting into that mindset and – Making something really physical as a result of it, There's something tangible you can touch after you've done that.
2: Yeah, I think I do miss it because I I've been I, I think I told you I just did the Bondi to Manly walk, which mm. is eighty kilometers. We did it in three days, so I had a lot of thinking time, and I was thinking several times. I thought I'm going to go home and get out my glass. I have I still have tools and stuff at home. It's copper foil. I thought I want to. That's what I want to do. I'm going to do some glass, and I'm going to teach my daughter how to do it. So I must miss it.
1: Maybe you needed that 80K walk as the catalyst to make you want to go back and do it again.
2: <laughs> Could have been. I wrote a song as well.
1: Oh, really? Yes. It's productive.
2: It, yeah, it was.
1: Being So does that mean you're away from technology the whole time? Um, or you were talking to people when you as you were walking? It wasn't just like you isolated just in your own mind at the time for well, 80 kilometers?
2: For the first two days, my partner was walking with me, but he didn't walk today. And today was the day I made decisions and wrote and wrote that song. Well, actually, I had a verse already written, so I just I really needed a chorus and a couple of other verses, so I did that. And I used technology to record. Once I had each verse, I recorded it just so I wouldn't forget it, so I used my voice memo on my phone.
1: You are the first guest that I have spoken to about stained glass. <laughs> so I'm very much appreciating this. You also said something very interesting off-air before as well. How did going from making stained glass transition into furniture making?
2: Oh... Well, that was just a job. Okay. I'm sorry, that sorry. That's not so <laughs> scintillating. But I think... Um, okay, I remember now. So I did stained glass as a summer job for a woman who had a stained glass business. And she um, she also had a sandblasting business. She had a s- sandblasting room. And I thought, oh, I'm so excited because the sandblaster at school was really tiny and you had to like put your hand through these gloves and this was like a whole room. So you put on like a space suit and mm. you had to shovel the sand into the thing. But here I go. This is really amazing art. And then it was like, it would just be this huge window with like some dentist's name, and I just had to oh, blast okay. everything except the name. And I would spend hours and hours in there just trying to <laughs> get it. It wasn't even. the
1: artwork you'd envisioned. <laughs> no,
2: it really wasn't the the creative flow state I was after. No. And anyway, so then she she closed her business down, but um. Next door, there was a, a furniture maker who was looking for an apprentice, so he hired me after when she when her business folded.
1: The reason that really piqued my interest was that I know that before Jack White was in the White Stripes, he was an upholsterer, and he spent his time basically reupholstering furniture.
2: <laughs> I had no idea.
1: Yeah, he used to be in a band called The Upholsterers, because I think he was about 18, 19 or even younger when he was doing that. And the guy who owned the business was, I think 35 and they played punk rock. It was a two piece sort of, you know, heavy blues punk band, which sort of was the starting point of him doing that kind of music.
2: He, so he played with his
1: boss. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's so cool. And his
1: boss was like 15 years older.
2: What did his boss play?
1: I don't know. if I think Jack was drumming. Oh, cause he was a drummer. Initially. I didn't know he
2: was a drummer. Okay. Yeah.
1: Wow. I, d- I should know that. That's a piece of Jack White trivia that I should know. I think he was drumming, and then Brian Muldoon was playing guitar and singing, but like, oh, I'm not exactly sure. Anyway, the point was that yeah, he was doing upholstering, but he used to he used to hide things. He, he like I don't know. I guess it was kind of not creative enough doing the upholstery for his mind. But he used to do things where he'd like write poetry, and then hide it.
2: That's wonderful. So
1: he'd h- write a poem and then re upholster the couch and the, the poem is stuck like in the couch or he'd write on the furniture itself some poetry or lyrics or something like that and then and it's re And then over the top.
2: Wow, yeah. that is just so great.
1: So I was going to ask if you did anything like that where you did inverted. stuff that you shouldn't have done to the furniture in the name of art.
2: <laughs> Alas, no. Okay. <laughs> I had a cutting list I had to stick to. Oh, it was mostly grunt work. I just had to wood and okay. sand a lot of sanding the
1: we should talk a bit more we haven't really spoken that much about bonnie and the Bonafide so far <laughs> but it's been very interesting nonetheless the your cd so as we said you played a lot of gigs in 2019 the last cd that had original compositions was i think 2017 the debut album yes can we talk about what 2020 looks to hold for Bonnie Kay and the Bonafides. Do you have new original music in the works? It sounds like you're writing one today. (laughs) Yes,
2: we do. We do. And and in fact, that was one of the things we talked about on the walk when I was walking with my partner, Wayne, who is the sax player and flute player in our band. And we... It's just it costs so much money to record. It's a big deal. But we decided to just do maybe a couple songs at a time. And we have... two original songs that are really ready to be recorded so I said you know let's just do it we'll just do two we can release them as singles and then once we have enough then we'll just put them together and make them a, an album what do you say album these days what do you say
1: yeah album CD? if you want to do five or six it could be an EP like yeah. a shorter release yeah okay so, so the next plan is to get into the studio yes and, and pardon me and start recording those to release for singles so to release in 2020 do you envision that or
2: yeah yeah, okay. well at least at least some of them. Okay. Maybe not a the whole compilation of them, but yeah.
1: And then it'd be good work to come after that. Yes, precisely. Right. right. It is time for Tell Me a Thing, where I have a list of seven topics, and I ask you to tell me something about one of them. The topics are musical equipment, recording equipment, poetry, politics, Patti Smith, death, and punk rock. So, Bonnie, can you please tell me a thing? Mine is punk rock. Okay. I was uh, in the punk rock scene in
2: Philadelphia when I was a teenager. I used to go to gigs. So went in the marsh, although I often just stood like right on the outside of the marsh so I could push people back in who were like flying out, but then I didn't have to worry about getting too damaged myself. I worked in a newsstand and there was a a much older guy who had a double Mohawk and he had a chain like going from his nose ring to his ear and he had lots of chains hanging and he would come to my newsstand. I had the biggest crush on him Okay, and uh, the double Mohawk guy, the double Mohawk guy, yeah. I had so I had I would wait with bated breath to see whatever he had to say. And once he invited me to see his band, so it turns out that his band's name was tattooed on the side of his head. And then someone told me, and I can't verify this, that when you get a tattoo on your skull, it stays there. Like after you die, like when your head rots away, there's still the tattoo on your skull. Oh, right. And I thought, always thought that was quite an interesting thing <laughs> that he would still have the name of his band.
1: After he died and passed away.
2: But am I allowed to swear on this
1: program? You can do basically whatever you want.
2: <laughs> because the, his band's name was Circle of Shit. And I thought, how funny to like encounter a skull that had just said Circle of Shit on the side of it.
1: Could you see, when you say it was on his head, do you mean his forehead or like no, it like was just, shaved in?
2: Yeah, it was like so the side of his head where the mohawk, like just below the ah, mohawk. I see so like above his ears i guess that would have hurt so much i reckon yes i've i've thought that on more than one occasion anyway so so we used to you know go and try and see all the punk bands which were often young like they were on college radio or whatever but they had big names then i can't remember who they were and we did that thing where you'd get a stamp and then you'd lick your hand and Try and transfer. Yeah, try and transfer the stamp
1: (laughs) to save the (laughs) five dollar entry fee. Two dollars, or whatever it was.
2: (laughs) It was a lot back then, man. (laughs) When
1: you were in that scene, you were going to lots of gigs as a really so a teenager, basically. Yeah. Were you playing in punk bands as well? Did you ever uh, go down that route and play play music in that genre?
2: No, no, I never played. I just was a fan. Okay. And then I moved to Holland. I was an exchange student when I was. Fifteen sixteen, I lived, so I lived in the Netherlands for a year, and then I upped my punkmanship there, because okay. there was a really cool punk scene there, so loved it. I just wanted to see the exploited there.
1: but you were were playing and singing blues at the time? No, or n- not playing music at all
2: No, I wasn't playing I sang, but I, I no I didn't get a guitar till I was sixteen, so this was all pre right pre me being an instrumentalist. and then when I look back, it was all guys as well. Who were in all those bands. Like, I don't think I had any women I aspired to mm. be like or play like in the punk scene. But uh, I mean I was in the punk scene, but I, I also liked all kinds of music.
1: Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on Women Who Rock. It's been great having a chat to you.
0: And this could be your biggest
1: break you feel is you just believe in Women Who Rock is proudly produced in the Sydney studios of do as one oh seven point three.
0: Look like at your hair.